listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. So James 2 talks about that within the church of God, favoritism is forbidden. See, favoritism on a mass scale is why we suffer from such a fractured Birmingham today. Because the flip side of favoritism is discrimination. To have a favorite, to favor one person, means someone must be being disfavored or discriminated against. And we live in a broken and sinful world where favoritism and discrimination run so rampant across not just our nation, but every nation, we start to think that that's normal and that's just how it is. And in one way, it is how it is, but it's not how God made it. That's not how God made it in the garden, and that's not his plan in the garden city to come. So James speaks this word to us to say, listen, church, whether it's over money or the color of skin or popularity or ethnicity or language or male or female or age, discrimination, the opposite of favoritism, it always hurts. And sometimes the consequences are just annoying. Sometimes they're just offensive. Sometimes they're just off-putting. But other times the consequences of favoritism and discrimination in our country's history have been absolutely terrifying. But Christians know that the God of the Bible is not silent about this. By no means. The God of the Bible is not silent about discrimination. And we need to hear from the Lord's lips today. Look at verses one through four. It says, my brothers, and when he says brothers, it means brothers and sisters. That's shorthand for the church, for the people who believe in Jesus. My church, show no partiality as you hold faith In the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord meaning Lord of the universe, Christ meaning the only salvation for men under heaven, the Lord of glory. If you follow him, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, it's just another word for the church, comes into the church building, comes into Sunday, Sunday, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, "Ooh, you sit here, good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, James gives an example of favoritism in the financial. And he could have gone a number of different ways here. In fact, Jesus does. He talks about cultural favoritism. He talks about ethnic favoritism. He talks about financial favoritism. He talks about gender favoritism. But James talks about financial favoritism in this letter as a theme of the letter, teaching Christians how to use and view their money properly. See, James is a pastor and he knows money is a gift, but used wrongly, it's a weapon. It could go both ways. And so imagine this scenario here at Citizens. They were all hanging in the parking lot like we do beforehand. And someone just drives up in a Maserati, does a little burnout. As the kids say, he's full of drip, comes out. His watch is worth three times our rent and walks in. And suddenly Justin starts acting strange. Hey, hey, man. Hey, hey, let's be best friends. You want the keys to my car? Come on, sit right here, sit right here. Charlie dedicates the first song to him. Sophie's like, you want extra hand sanitizer? Got you. And everyone just says it's, it's greeting time and everyone just kind of circles in, circles in on this man. 
And then imagine a poor person, someone who seems obviously in financial need. Maybe they, they look homeless. Maybe their clothing is that shabby. Maybe they smell from not bathing. And we all collectively look and go, oh, man, how about, how about you sit like over there or like down here, like in the back, but not too close to the newborn room? Get what I mean, man? And that would be ridiculous. That feels as strange and as cringy as it is. And that's James' point. He's not saying that they do that exact thing every Sunday and correcting it, but rather he's saying, hey, when you make distinctions among you like that, it's that cringy, it's that ridiculous, it's that unfathomable that the people of God would treat two people creating God's image so differently on the basis of something so worldly. See, God would forbid that scenario and favoritism's forbidden in our life for four reasons. The first one is, is that it's against God's character. God is holy, perfect, and good, and he created you, created you for him and by him. He made you and you're made for God. You're not like an animal. You're not like a plant. You're not like a rock. You are made in the image of God. It's in the first chapter of Genesis, which means every single human, God has no favorites. He loves all. And he looks at us and he sees an image of himself, which means every person who's ever lived has worth dignity, value, and is worthy of respect and love from fellow human beings. And to do anything less than respect, love, honor another is a failure before the character of God. That's the first reason it's forbidden. The second reason that would be forbidden, the scenario of Maserati guy and homeless guy, Second reason it's forbidden, it's against God's explicit law. Look at verses eight and nine. He dives right in this. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, if you show favoritism or it's ugly twin discrimination, you are committing sin. Hear that church. It's not a preference thing. It's not how you're raised thing. It's not your mama's fault. It's not your dad's fault. It's not, there's nowhere to hide. Favoritism, partiality, discrimination are sin, sin, sin. And there's no way to cut it a different way. You are committing a sin and are convicted by God's law, the scripture, as a transgressor, which is just a big fancy word, which means across the line. You've crossed the line of God. You've broken the law. God's royal law, he calls it because it's King Jesus's book and it's King Jesus's Bible. You've broken the king's rule. So favoritism is forbidden, one, because it's against God's character, two, because it's against his explicit law that we should love our neighbor. And he quotes it, and they would know it because that comes out of the heart of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it says that exact line, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus will repeat that over and over in the gospels. When he's asked, what's the most important command? He'll repeat that. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we love to define who our neighbor is. But we learn in the gospels, our neighbor is anyone we meet. 
and every person that's ever lived because they're made in the image of God. And that's what matters most, not what you wear, not how much you have, not where you're from, not who your dad or your mom is. What matters is that God made you for him and by him and God's royal law says we must love one another. You cannot favor some and discriminate against others and claim to love them both. It don't work in God's kingdom. It don't work in God's church. It don't work in this world. And favoritism is wrong for a third reason. It's because, and this may seem obvious, but it needs to be said, favoritism hurts people. Favoritism hurts because even in this quick example he gives them, what ends up? You sit here, you sit there. That's segregation. And as the courts had to tell America, the separate is never equal. Favoritism hurts people because even in the example, it led to prejudiced thinking that one person, the rich person, must be inherently better than the poor person. Favoritism hurts people. It's not just less than love. It's actually hate. It's active hate with a different name. And last, favoritism is wrong because favoritism makes God's people judges, which make them look ridiculous too. As ridiculous as the example is, when we become a judge and bring this into any area of our life, the workplace, school, the neighborhood, where the choices we make, the attitudes we hold, the words we say, we become ridiculous too. Look how he draws this out in verses five through seven. It says, listen, listen, my beloved church, listen to me. Notice this. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Heirs, the people who will inherit the kingdom, for he has promised to those who love him. Everyone who loves God has a promise coming that they'll inherit the kingdom. They'll be with the king forever. Verse six, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? Are not the rich ones the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And what he's pointing out to us is when we start judging by favoritism on whatever scale we make up, we end up getting it wrong anyways, and maybe we do evil. See, James says, notice the poor. They seem to embrace the faith more readily. We are tempted to favor the rich like the world does, but to do so, we do dishonor to the poor. And here's the ridiculous part. Notice this, Christian, as he says it, it's the rich ones who throughout world history cause problems for Christianity. He's saying you want to favor the rich just like the world usually does. And guess who causes all the problems for the church in country after country over the past 2,000 years? He's telling them, don't give in to the worldly temptation to favorite or cuddle up to worldly power, worldly money, or worldly elitism, because one day they'll oppress you because they follow a different king. It's called money and worldly elitism. We don't need to chase worldly power, church, because we have a powerful God. It's no different than throughout the Old Testament, Israel was tempted to favorite or ally with whatever powerful nation they could find instead of trust God as they were meant to for their safety and security. James isn't singing a new song, but an old one to us. And here's the deeper critique we need to hear today. You ready for it, fam? 
Everybody shake it out a little bit. You got to stay loose if we're going to get stretched, all right? Dorky jokes. All right. Being rich, being upper class, well-educated, does not make you inherently good, wise, or helpful. Being poor does not make you inherently bad, unintelligent, or a problem. Usually, the capitalistic worldview, the Western worldview, says the rich must be good and the poor must be bad. That's a common baked-in assumption. But there's another worldview that's pretty prevalent today, too. I'll loosely call this a Marxist worldview, that the poor must be good and the rich must be bad. And the Bible is teaching us through his word over and over that wealth is not the determining factor of your morality. There are good rich people, good poor people, bad poor people, bad rich people throughout the Bible. But there is a thread throughout the Bible with material wealth and faith that James is speaking to here and Jesus highlights in his own ministry. And what the thread is this, that often those with less in this world seem to long for God and eternity more and end up being rich in faith because they don't have things in their hands. They tend to flip those hands to the Lord a little quicker. Luke 6.20 highlights this. He lifted his eyes as Jesus to his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor for the kingdom of God, for yours is the kingdom of God. He'll teach a similar thing in a parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, that often people who are in touch with their own poverty, in touch with their needs, tend to hear this message of a salvation much quicker. But on the flip side, the rich in this life as a trend, they're in danger. Why? Because wealth is seductive. Money makes you think, and it's a lie, money makes you think that you have all you need in life, so why you need God? Money will trick you into saying, if you just had a little bit more of me, things would be fine, and can keep you from embracing a God who only accepts the needy. Listen to Jesus from Luke 18, 24 through 25. He's speaking to the rich religious man. He was the leader of the synagogue. Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say, they're like, how can that happen? He goes, well, what's impossible with man is easy with God. So we figured that out. Salvation comes to those who see their need. But if you struggle to see your need, you'll probably just move on to the next material thing to clog your heart and clog your mind. It's hard to see your need when your hands are full, even if this world can't save and it never satisfies. When Israel had plenty, that's when they forgot about God. That's why Pastor James, he's pastoring a lot of people who've converted from Judaism to Christianity, who've found the fulfillment of the, of, the, of the Christ, of the Savior to come, and he's speaking them an old song to him once again. He's saying, remember when Israel had it all, they ran from God. When Israel was in trouble, just like when we're in trouble, when we suffer, when we lose jobs, when we get the bad doctor report, when things aren't going well, it tends to pull us back to God, not away from God. 
So when we teach about giving here at Citizens, you'll notice if you hang deep with us for a long time that the focus is never on meeting Citizens' budget. Our teaching on giving, the focus isn't in meeting our budget here at Citizens, but the focus is on our heart because money can and will easily be your master unless you fight against it. We're in one of the largest, wealthiest countries in the history of the world. It is a main temptation. Whether you got a little or a lot, it don't matter. It's just in the air in America. It's what we breathe. It is the source of all sorts of evil. Greed is. And so when we teach on it, we want to teach over and over and over that the antidote is to let Jesus be your master by obeying Jesus and his commands to be generous because God already owns it all. You're just a steward or a manager of what God has given you. Even if you worked hard and earned it, well, who gave you those skills and that education and that life and the oxygen you breathe? Jesus. There ain't no way around it saying all that we have is God's. So giving is a way to say, that ain't my master. Jesus is. I'd rather trust him with my income than hold it all tight and believe I'm self-sufficient and believe the lie of wealth. Wealth doesn't make us better people. In fact, as James points out, it's not the poor then or the poor now who primarily drag people into court. That's not a poor man's game in the world. If you look at the lawyer profession, if you look at the Supreme Court, all of them got their law degrees from Harvard, Yale, and one from Notre Dame currently. Our court system, a place that should be the highest place of justice, that's what it's for, even there is influenced by money and some bias. It's true The Brian Stevenson, the respected attorney, the eminent attorney of the Equal Justice Initiative, one of the most powerful attorneys in America, he says, man, there's something wrong with a system where it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. And that is a powerful word. And we should be thankful for our court system and thankful for our justice system compared to world history and compared to the whole globe. But there's still room to grow. And I want to highlight that just because the scriptures do. It's talking about court systems here that we can say our faith is not in the courts. Our faith doesn't need to be in money. Our faith needs to be in our God. And we don't need to look like fools, ridiculous chasing after worldly things when all they do is let us down over and over. One day, justice will roll like a river. But when the church forbids favoritism among its people, we become a refuge for all people in a broken world. When the church forbids favoritism among its people, we retrieve our prophetic voice to speak out against injustice and favoritism and discrimination in the world. When the church forbids favoritism among its people, we become a taste of heaven that one day before Jesus, all will be healed and that there's a real hope and people can taste it in the church. But when Christians have been at verse seven, called by the honorable name of God to be an honorable people. Look at verse seven. It says the honorable name by which you are called. There's a challenge here that we need not just to be fair people. We need not just to be more just than our neighbor, but we're called to be a people of great mercy, which is an entirely different thing that we would have mercy for people and situations that we don't understand. 
that we would have mercy that would motivate us to make space for people over rush to judgment, that mercy would make us not only care about ourselves, but other people. See, it's a failure of mercy, church, to let others be discriminated against while we enjoy favor. That's what mercy is. It means you care about that neighbor. It's not just about your experience of life. It's about everyone's experience of this life. To say it another way, it's a failure of love and mercy not to notice the disfavor of another. We are called to be merciful and we become merciful by seeing our own need for mercy. You're not just gonna work yourself up into being more merciful. That'll last for a week. And if it lasts longer than a week, you'll get self-righteous that you're more merciful than this girl or this guy. But when you see your deep need for mercy, you swell up to become a merciful person. And that's where verse 10 leads us. It's instead God's mercy, not our goodness, that makes us an impartial people. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those to be judged under the law of liberty. James is trying to point to us that you need the mercy of God. It's not some other person who needs God's mercy. It's you. Because remember, Jesus took this law out of our hands and into our heart. He says, hey, don't commit adultery, but don't even lust after one another. Not just don't murder, but don't hate one another in the heart. Not just don't steal, but don't have jealousy. Over and over we see, and we like to think that maybe like breaking God's law is like getting a dent in the side of our car door. And it's like, that's no problem. We didn't wreck the car. But sin is more like cracking a cylinder in the engine. The car's not going to run anymore because our sins aren't just against one another. They're before a holy and perfect God where even one sin is far too many and that we need God's mercy in our life. This text is saying that our need for mercy drives our ability to be merciful. Our need for mercy drives our ability to be merciful because we receive the mercy of God and forsake being judgmental people, which leaves us ridiculous at the end of the day. But the question is this, if we all desperately need mercy, then how's the mercy of God even work? How's it work? If God is a perfectly just God who punishes every sin, or he wouldn't be just, right? If God's a perfectly just God, then how can he be so merciful? That's why the prophet Jonah was so confused. He went to Nineveh. Nineveh was the baddest guy on the block. Nineveh did all these horrible things. Nineveh this, Nineveh that. And Jonah was so frustrated. Why would God give all these Ninevites mercy? And it's easy for us to be confused too and wonder, how can God's mercy triumph and God remain just? Look at verse 13. That's the claim. For judgment without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How can God be perfectly just and merciful if mercy triumphs over justice? And James knows because James has met 
mercy himself. And his name was Jesus. See, the way God can be merciful to us in our sin is not because mercy just triumphs over judgment, but because the mercy of God comes through the judgment of Jesus. God's mercy throughout the Old Testament is looking forward to one day all those sins would come due. It's like an invoice that kept getting nailed and nailed and nailed and past due and past due. Anybody got a bill past due? Past due and past due. All of the Old Testament and all the sins of all time. And on the cross was littered with the sins of all people where mercy himself, Jesus, came and was risen high and brought low with nails pounded through his hands and legs, that the judgment due for sin was weighed on Jesus so that the mercy could triumph in judgment towards God's people because mercy came through judgment on the very life of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die just as a good example. Jesus didn't die just as a hero. Jesus died as God himself, taking on the sins of the world, all the past due death penalties due for sin were paid in Jesus' death. And in Jesus' resurrection, we see that he overcame those sins. They're paid in full so that whoever believes in Jesus has their sin debt cleared, and a relationship with God can begin today. If your hope is to out-mercy other people without a merciful God, good luck. If your hope is to try to be more merciful, to try not to show favoritism, try not to discriminate, you will find yourself growing increasingly self-righteous at your own goodness or increasingly crumbling as you see how far you truly are from God. But the Christian can say the mercy that God's building in me is from God because I'm experiencing mercy. And when I see myself fall short, I can find mercy again in my Savior's arms. If we wish to be a merciful people, we first must see our own need for mercy and find mercy in a merciful God. And he will create us to be a whole new kind of people. See, church, mercy is free to us, but costly to God. Mercy doesn't triumph because God likes us or because we're likable or because we promise to work hard. But mercy triumphs over judgment because God loves us enough to die for us. It is God's works that save us, not our own works. If we choose to live by judgment, we will die by judgment. A telltale sign that you've not received the mercy of God is that you refuse to be merciful. If you can't forgive, you won't forgive, you can't give mercy, it's a sign that you've not experienced the mercy of God. And my eager plea to you is to take Jesus as Lord of the universe and Christ, Savior for sins, and become that merciful person today through faith in him and not in your own goodness. It looks like repenting of sin and believing in Jesus' free gift of the gospel. Church, for our application, there'd be no other application than to search our heart and ask, who have we favorited in this life? 
Who have we chosen to favor at one and inherently disfavor another? And that could be a long look in the mirror to think through your different domains of home, workplace, your big family structure, your neighbors, your choices. But if you are in Christ, do it holding the hand of your Savior. For every one look at your sin, take 10 looks at the cross or you will be lost, my friends. To look at our problems, we must see that we have a great solution in our Savior who can forgive that sin in an instant and plant a new thing in the garden of your heart today. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can raise you from the dead one day. And we have a Savior who for our sake became poor, became foolish to the world, to save the truly foolish, us, by the riches of his mercy. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 